Hello and welcome to the Youth Fusion Expert Series, a podcast where we engage with leaders and experts in the various related fields of nuclear disarmament, peace and security, and sustainable development. Through these conversations, we wish to offer you all the chance to learn and be inspired by those who are actively working towards a fairer and more peaceful future for all. My name is Michaela Sørensen, and I am a program officer at Youth Fusion, and I'm delighted to host today's episode. Today we have with us a very experienced and well-accomplished guest with a very cool background, Renata Hesman de Lacqua, who is originally from Brazil. Renata is currently the head of the Gender and Disarmament Program at Unidia, but before joining Unidia, she was the Deputy Director of Projects at the Brazilian Center for International Relations, SEBRI, where she worked for six years. Renata is also the recipient of the United Nations Women's Scholarship for Peace, where she has published and conducted research on international cooperation on security, disarmament, non-proliferation and arms control, as well as nuclear energy governance. She holds a PhD in History and Politics from the Vargas Foundation in Brazil and a Master's degree in International Politics and Security from the University College of London in the UK. Renata's areas of expertise include gender and multilateral disarmament fora, nuclear energy policy making and technology governance. Today, we are very excited to hear from her. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Right, so we are recording and ready to start this interview. I'm really, really excited uh, to have you here today. I've seen you in several webinars and I've been very, very inspired because I'm also very interested and invested in the gender peace and security field, especially in connection to nuclear disarmament. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, I first want to hear a little bit about you and what your background is. So the first question we have today, and there's a little bit uh, of some fangirling here. So you have a very interesting resume. Uh, please tell us a little bit more about your journey from your education to your career. Thank you very much, Michaela. Thank you for your kind words and for this invitation. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast episode with you. And yeah, let's see. Let's share a little bit of my career. So um, I started doing research on nuclear disarmament issues as a graduate, undergraduate student in Brazil. Um, I was actually a political science uh, major in Brazil, and I was doing research on not really on nuclear issues. It was a, a debate um, around historiography. I think that's the word in, in English. And I was researching this um, historian. His name is E.P. Uh, Thompson, and he was a activist for nuclear disarmament. So through that research project, I got to know um, his work with the CND in the UK, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament, and his activism with nuclear disarmament. And I got really interested into that. So I got, uh, I was able to feature and fit that into my research project as an undergrad. And that was really at the time where I was thinking about my next steps. Um, so I applied for a master's program in the UK 
and already when in my application I wrote about what I wanted to study, which was um, proposals for nuclear disarmament. And uh, very much inspired by the work of E.P. Thompson that I had had contact with um, as an undergrad. And I was lucky to get into the uh, master's program in the UK. Uh, I also got a scholarship and that was really important to me. Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to, to go. So during my, in my master's program, so I worked for two years doing research on uh, the campaign for a um, convention uh, for nuclear disarmament. And that was around 2009, 2009 to 2011. In that period, I got to do two internships that were very important for my career. One internship was with Vertic, which is a UK charity that works on um, arms control and, and verification issues. And another internship with, was with the CTBTO in Vienna. So the organization in charge of the treaty that prohibits um, nuclear tests. So already in my master's, I was very much focused on nuclear related issues. And um, yeah, it was a, a very good experience. The experience that I had, you know, time to do my research and also time to do these internships. And when I finished my master's, I decided to go back to Brazil. In Brazil, I was working with different things on international relations. I mean, nuclear disarmament is not a field per se in Brazil. So I was working on international relations affairs. And then I got into a PhD program. And then for my PhD, I studied um, issues more focused about nuclear technology and governance in Brazil. So um, yeah, and, and I continue to follow debates around nuclear disarmament from Brazil. And I, man I, I remember I was able to participate and attend a couple of the um, humanitarian conferences uh, as part of the, the journey that took to the uh, treaty prohibiting nuclear weapons, the, the TPNW. So yes, it was a time in Brazil that I was doing multiple things at the same time and um, working, studying, following nuclear affairs. And then uh, after I, I finished my PhD, um, I moved to Geneva and started working with UNIDIR, which is the UN Institute for Disarmament Research. So I've been in this field for, I don't know, over 12 years, I guess. Wow, I think that uh, I'm very, very impressed and uh, in high admiration of uh, your path. And I think it's also so interesting to to see how it's evolved and, and it's always not like a straight line, um, especially in the nuclear disarmament field. And also in Brazil, I was also thinking, wow, it's 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 nuclear disarmament is not the first thing that comes to mind um, when you think of Brazil, even though it is a nuclear uh, free weapon free zone. Um, but it's just very inspiring to see how you've uh, managed to to get along uh, in the field. Um, and it's it's great to hear stories like yours uh, and then leading to the next question. So now we know you're from Brazil, uh, a country that said no to nuclear weapons and is now in a nuclear weapon free zone. Did that have any impact on what inspired you to get involved in nuclear disarmament in any way? I think so. I think uh, my view and my perspectives around um, the global nuclear order, they're very much shaped from, they're very much shaped by my background as a Brazilian political scientist, as someone that was 
trained to see the world in a certain way. And um, for instance, during my, my early studies, I could see there was a lot of emphasis uh, in, in other countries on non-proliferation. And the Brazilian position was very much you know, strengthening the disarmament aspect of um, uh, the, the bargain of the, the NPT of the Nuclear um, Non-Proliferation Treaty. And um, yeah, I think, you know, the diplomatic tradition in Brazil is very strong um, and it's very much emphasizing issues of fairness and justice in the international system. And that resonates with uh, the debates around the NPT. Um, so yeah, so I, I think um, being from Brazil made me aware of, you know, power imbalances in the international system and also shaped my interest in the issue of disarmament. I can see from other countries uh, where you have, let's say, a nuclear security complex or a, a nuclear industry very strong, um, that will shape preferences and that will shape, you know, the traject your professional trajectory. Coming from Brazil, I think uh, we don't really have you know, a strong nuclear security complex. We do use nuclear energy. Um, there are two power plants operating in Brazil, but it's a sector that, you know, it's relatively small. Um, so yeah, I think, but that also plays a role. It plays a role in that, you know, about the usefulness and the reliance on the peaceful uses of nuclear energy as well. So I think, yes, I was always looking at the issues around uh, the global nuclear order from, from a Brazilian perspective. I think that that's so interesting to just see how your environment impacted your, your view on, on the topic. I mean, I think growing up uh, in South Africa that also grew, uh, gave up their nuclear weapons, I've also had it instilled in me that, you know, nuclear weapons are not good and you know, have a more mentality towards disarmament. But I wonder, you know, in other countries that have nuclear weapons, for instance, maybe the discourse is a bit different. And, you know, obviously that can impact the people's mindsets and especially in the education systems. You said that with throughout your education, you know, they put focus on the NPT and the importance of that. Yes, I agree with you. I also think uh, countries that you know, in the case of South Africa, it went through a disarmament process or countries that decided not to develop nuclear weapons. They also have security concerns and they have found ways to address those security concerns without relying on nuclear weapons. And that is a concrete example that nuclear disarmament and a world free of nuclear weapons is possible. So I think if you come from this perspective, for sure, we still have security concerns, but we are dealing with it in a different way. Um, it, it's a very strong example, I think. Most definitely. And I think that it's it's also just very clear to see um, in the sort of a social and destructive power of things and how it works within the nuclear weapons uh, space where the countries that have gone through disarmament you know, they don't really have a lot of say um, because they don't have the sort of power, so to speak. Um, so what, what are your thoughts on, you know, do you think that countries that like South Africa and Brazil, do you think that their voices are valued 
within the within that space in the security space or do you think they're not heard enough yeah that's a, a, a interesting question um i think south africa brazil and other non-nuclear weapons countries have a strong agency and they have been able to show that through multiple initiatives. Uh, South Africa and Brazil are part of the new agenda coalition that has played a very important role in uh, NPT negotiations and in the nuclear regime more broadly. Um, South Africa and Brazil are also part of nuclear weapon free zones, which also play an important role in the you know, nuclear disarmament architecture. And South Africa and Brazil were also part of the core group leading the negotiations for the TPNW. So I think we have multiple examples to show the agency and the impact that countries like South Africa and Brazil can have in the um, international space. So uh, I think uh, though we, South Africa and Brazil have a lot in common and uh, have been trying to make progress in disarmament through different uh, initiatives. Most definitely. And I just think that there's so much to learn through um, their disarmament uh, stories. So I, I hope that uh, they get uh, more recognition and then people follow their lead <laughs> with the nuclear disarmament. Um, right. So then the next question, which you've kind of talked a little bit about, but maybe can elaborate more on is what is the nuclear disarmament like in Brazil now and, and maybe a bit more broadly within Latin America? So this space around nuclear disarmament, in Brazil, I can talk a bit from where I was coming from, which was more the acad academic space. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are a lot of good people doing good research on nuclear related issues in Brazil. And uh, so I had very, you know, brilliant colleagues uh, doing research, especially on the nuclear history side of things, researching archives, um, doing oral history, trying to piece together um, very much the collaboration um, between Brazil and Argentina on nuclear issues, because Brazil and Argentina have their own verification um, agency, uh, which is ABAC, mm -hmm. um, Nuclear Verification Agency, and they have like a very particular history. So I think the academic space around nuclear weapons issues and nuclear energy issues in Brazil is very strong. Um, what happens is maybe not always they are writing in English. So sometimes there may be an issue that this research is mostly accessible in Portuguese rather than in English. And I think that can, you know, create a bit of difficulty in terms of, of broader access to that mm -hmm. research. I think in terms of uh, like we, we can think about think tanks or, you know, civil society organizations, um, there are many think tanks and civil society organizations dealing with issues related to urban violence in Brazil, because I think that makes sense because that is very much uh, a priority issue, a problem that is affecting everyone's, you know, daily life. Mm -hmm. And by comparison, you don't have that many um, think tanks or civil society organizations working on nuclear disarmament, just because, you know, from, you know, the immediate reality, that is not the priority. And if you are coming from a space where you have to uh, limited resources, 
you would have to choose where you put your resources and what resonates uh, with society at large, uh, then I think, you know, you would prioritize issues related to small arms, um, to urban violence, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of, you know, how I, how I see the, 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 the space in Brazil. But there are think tanks on international relations more broadly that cover um, nuclear weapons and, and uh, nuclear governance uh, topics. And that, that's also what I was working when I was working in an international relations think tank in Brazil. I was covering issues related to you know, international security broadly. And then uh, within that, when there was time, when there was resources, when there was an opportunity covering nuclear issues as well. Yeah, I can definitely uh, see that the academic space is a, a bit more lively. We had a podcast with uh, Ana Maria Seto from uh, Mexico, who was working at the, she had a very robust career within the International um, Atomic Energy Agency. And she was also talking a lot about this uh, in terms of uh, Latin America being a huge knowledge um, hub uh, in terms of nuclear disarmament. But also she was mentioning that the open access to the knowledge is, is a huge problem, um, especially when the global north uh, sort of knowledge entities kind of have a gatekeeping uh, hold on that front. So I definitely... Uh, think that that could be a little crossover in the podcasts here, <laughs> touching on the same topics. Um, but that covers the, uh, the background segment uh, of this um, podcast episode. So now we're going to move on to my personal favorite, which is the gender and nuclear disarmament segment, uh, where the first question is asking what inspired you to get involved with gender and nuclear disarmament? Because I know that that's what you are working a lot with. That's right. I am the um, head of UNIDIR's gender and disarmament program. And that's a, a, a job I started doing in 2018. And what inspired me to, you know, first of all, apply for this position was that um, as I said, I've been following issues related to, to nuclear weapons um, since I was an undergraduate student. And at a point, at the, there was a point where I felt, you know, things seem a bit stagnant. Um, the debates that I'm covering and the issues seem to be, you know, kind of a, a repetition. Uh, it would be good to find a new angle to approach this topic. And when this job when I saw this job opening I thought well I think there's potential there um, if I start working on gender and, and nuclear issues that would definitely be a new angle for me personally to explore but also a new agenda for um, multilateral affairs and so it, it that's what you know sparked the the interest uh, sparked my interest in this in this position and since I started, it has been very much a learning process for me. I had not worked on gender issues before. I had done um, um, training program, mostly focusing on women, peace and security. And I think that, you know, gave me some background into the topic, but I was very much uh, learning together with the disarmament community because it's been a new issue for all of us. And um, I think that's very interesting because then we can do lots of research projects that we don't know what we're gonna find. We set up these research projects 
seeking to understand, you know, how gender norms shape this discussion in international affairs, or how does gender norm, how do gender norms relate to arms control and disarmament with the specific um, angles, let's say, for covering cybersecurity debates or biological weapons debates. And we don't know what we're gonna find out. So I really like this aspect of the work being very much exploratory and leading us to, you know, innovative approaches and innovative ideas. And I very much believe that the gender agenda has driven innovation in arms control and disarmament. For instance, we're seeing the establishment of gender focal points in certain conventions. And uh, you see some individuals who are really engaged and want to learn more and want to make sure that they are applying a gender lens to their um, national position. So it's, it's a very interesting space. It's a space where new things are happening all the time. So I really like that. Most definitely, I can agree with you there. And I think that's also why I share the similar interest and also just because I feel that the disarmament space and you know the gender agenda are just so intrinsically linked together in, in my mind. And, you know, for me, I, I think I came into the field around 2020. So I, I came into the disarmament space when that was already kind of like an established norm. <laughs> so I was really quite uh, lucky for that. Um, but I think especially for you, where you've been in the field for a long time, I can definitely see how that's um, bringing new perspectives in and, and quite exciting work. And I'm very much looking forward to see uh, what what work comes out of that in the in the future, because I think there is a lot of space um, and things we need to find out. Uh, and then that leads us to the next question. Uh, you are the recipient of the United Nations Women's Scholarship for Peace. So congratulations and parabéns on that. It's a wonderful achievement. Uh, and in light of this, could you tell us what it is like being a woman in such a masculinized space as security? Because I can imagine that sometimes could be a little bit tough. That's a, a very good question, Michaela. And, and I mean, I can respond to that in two ways. I can talk about my personal experience, but I can also talk about, you know, the research that we've been doing about gender balance in arms control and disarmament. And from my personal experience, I can relate to you. Uh, when I was doing my PhD research, I had to interview lots of um, military officers and, you know, government officials that were in charge of uh, the nuclear file in Brazil. And most of the times they were men. Uh, a lot of the times they were, you know, senior government officials, also older men. And I think the fact, you know, that I was coming to interview them, being a woman, a young woman, and also a civilian, that also played a role in the way that they saw me. And I think, yeah, maybe it's sometimes they weren't really taking me that serious. Or when we were going to do an interview, they would start, you know, from the basics, assuming that I didn't know much about the topic, even though, you know, it was my PhD research. So it just, at that time, it meant I had to have more patience in my work. I had to have extra time to listen to the basics all the time. And yeah, but at this, it was, you know, what, what I, I, I had to 
to do. And in the end, I think I interviewed, you know, over 50 people. And as I said, mostly men who had worked in the nuclear field. And it was very useful for my research. Um, but I definitely think, you know, my identity, my age, the fact that I was not coming from a military background, I think also that played in the way that um, they responded to me. And from our research, um, so at UNIDIR, we've been doing research on, on gender and, and disarmament diplomacy. So we did this study called Still Behind the Curve, which was published in 2019, um, where we looked at who gets to participate in disarmament diplomacy. And we learned that, you know, only a third of diplomats attending disarmament conferences are women. And uh, when it comes to leadership, on average, it's around 20% of the delegations that, you know, have a woman uh, as head of delegation. So we see the disparities in the number. The data shows us that. We also see that in the rooms. Um, when we attend a, a disarmament conference, we can see, you know, it's mostly men. Who gets to speak also, it's mostly men. You can attend today in 2022, you can attend a session of the Conference on Disarmament and not hear a single woman speak. So it's very much, um, uh, uh, the imbalances are still very much present. And in addition to looking at the numbers, we also organize focus groups with disarmament diplomats. And this we also you know both men and women took part in those focus groups and they shared with us what they they helped us put the numbers in context so what's the story behind this low level of participation of women in disarmament which is lower than other fields of diplomacy let's say human rights social affairs where women are already 50 percent of the, the the delegates and diplomats told us, you know, that the field of international security tends to reward characteristics that are mostly associated with men. As I was saying, military training, uh, some ideas of, you know, what being tough means and what being serious means. And these ideas are mostly linked with masculinized norms. Um, there are other issues as well related to, you know, work-life balance. Um, there is this, I mean, disarmament, there are disarmament conferences that run for a month and you are expected, you know, to drop everything and go to New York for a whole month for the NPT. And we know that family responsibilities, they are not necessarily equally distributed among men and women. A lot of the times women shoulder more of the responsibilities related, you know, to taking care of the house, taking care of the kids. And that has an impact in career progression. Um, so this was also something that diplomats told us, you know, that there is this perception in international security files that you can just drop everything uh, and, and, and go for it. And that is harder for, for women than men, has been harder for women than men. Hopefully this will change. And that's what we are trying to work. It's, you know, uh, trying to adapt diplomacy to family life. And that is something that would benefit both women and men. Because um, yeah, dealing with, with you know, work-life balance, trying to find work-life balance, it's also an issue for men as well. And that's something that we try to bring in the discussions on gender equality is that, you know, moving, achieving equality is something that will be good for everyone. 
Most definitely. And I think that within the gender um, field in general, all of this is ringing a very clear bell across the board. <laughs> um, but it's also just, I've read a few studies that have said that you need at least at least minimum a 30% representation of, of women within any given institution to make impactful incremental change, right? And, and as you said, the numbers are below that um, within the nuclear disarmament space. So how are we, you know, as, and you've also said uh, earlier on in the interview that you found some of the, um, the aspects of the nuclear disarmament field to be stagnant. So I think uh, not the, that correlation is a causation, but you know I think there's enough studies to back up that including more women in the in the representation really does help to to bring new perspectives and and valuable perspectives, um, especially in such a field where you know maybe we need to value the feminine norms uh, a bit more and put more light onto them in our approach because. I think it is quite a masculinized field from what I've experienced so far, even though it is disarmament, it still falls under the security realm, right? So definitely ringing lots of bells when you're speaking about it. Um, but then the next question uh, is one that I'm very excited to hear about. Uh, can you explain some of the intersectional connections between gender and nuclear disarmament that you found in your work? Right, so um, gender and nuclear disarmament, gender and, and I mean, the way we work at UNIDIR is gender and, and arms control and disarmament more broadly. Nuclear is one aspect that we cover, but we see the relevance of gender as an analytical tool to all areas of arms control and disarmament, covering, you know, conventional weapons, covering chemical, biological, nuclear weapons, and also security technology. And the way we see uh, that gender norms and arms control are linked um, it's it's there are different aspects that I think are relevant and that I would like to highlight the first is most the most obvious one it's the issue of participation the field is lagging behind other fields of of, of policy uh, in terms of um, women's participation and uh, you can I mean we have seen an increase in women's participation in this field. Um, I should say that in the civil society space, I think it's already 50-50. And, you know, we have women leading uh, very important organizations from civil society. Uh, and I, I don't really think that's a space um, that is so, uh, where we're lagging so behind, like we are, you know, in official um, disarmament delegates, national delegations and governmental officials. Um, I think there is a, a, a bigger gap in this uh, governmental posts. And um, so participation is kind of, you know, the first entry point uh, where we see the relevance of gender and arms control, gender uh, to arms control and disarmament. Um, a second more, uh, a, a second option to, to integrate gender and, and arms control and disarmament is to look at how um, gender norms shape how weapons are seen and used in society and also the impact of those weapons. Um, and this again has relevance across the board. Uh, we know from uh, the issue, issues related to small arms and light weapons, most perpetrators of armed violence are men most victims, fatal victims are also men. 
uh, women face a different um, burden, which is uh, the fact that uh, they are a lot of the times small arms and light weapons are used to commit gender-based violence and violence against women. So, you know, gender provides a, an interesting lens to look at the issues of um, armed violence and the impact of that, those, of that of, uh, violence in society. Uh, when we look at nuclear, for instance, uh, there are studies with survivors that show that um, after being exposed to radiation, to ionizing radiation, uh, women are more likely to develop and die from cancers than men. Um, there's also and, and and there's also the issue of women's bodies and how it, they're perceived in society, and that can lead, you know, to different experience of stigma. Um, you know, if you are deemed as a woman to be contaminated, to have been exposed to to radiation, um, that a certain, you know, the way society perceives women's body, oh, well, you're not suitable for marrying and having children then, for instance. So that's one aspect where, where gender plays a role as well. And uh, we've done studies about, you know, um, accidents involving chemical agents and also heard about stigma in that area as well. Um, the experience of, of uh, being a survivor from a, a chemical incident is also shaped by gender roles and that would also have an impact in the case of um, chemical weapons use. So this is just to say, you know, a few, few highlights of our work uh, on gendered impact. And then a third way where we, in which we can approach uh, gender and arms control is to look at the different um, multilateral agendas, uh, for instance, the United Nations has this agenda called the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, um, which looks into protecting women in conflict, but also making sure that their needs and their considerations are included in post-conflict um, um, rebuilding and delivery of services. And that has also uh, synergies with the work that uh, diplomats do in the field of arms control and disarmament. So connecting the dots between these different uh, multilateral agendas is also something that we are very much interested in doing um, because it makes sense, because it's you know, increasing policy coherence, but also because it can make, can make a difference uh, on the ground uh, in the way that UN and other international actors deliver services on the ground. Most definitely. And I, I think that as we've, we've talked about before, there's just an, an endless, uh, amount of uh, situations and dynamics and research that is still to be found out and been done on in the nuclear disarmament field in terms of gender. So definitely getting a bit of a taste of that for our listeners here today is, I think will be quite eye-opening because I think a lot of the times gender isn't the, the first thing that pops into your mind when you, when you think about nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament or just arms control in general. So thank you for shedding light onto, onto that and uh, highlighting those um, interconnections. Uh, and now one of the second last question um, is kind of uh, going in with the theme of what we've been talking about in this uh, section to wrap up a little bit. Um, so it's asking, not everyone believes that gender even has a place within the security space. 
Therefore, what are your recommendations to strengthen the gender agenda within nuclear disarmament or just disarmament and arms control in general uh, in that space? And, and yeah, just in general, what are your, your recommendations? It's true that people have different views about the relevance of, of gender in arms control and disarmament. And people have different views about the importance of gender equality as well. Um, you know, we still have to convince a lot of people that it's important to achieve gender equality. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a difficult task convincing people about that uh, because at the end of the day, it's about power imbalances and redressing power imbalances. And there are people that benefit from these power imbalances. And it's very hard um, to try to convince them with arguments that they should uh, work for towards uh, a world where you know power is shared more equally among, uh, between men and women. So it's it's a tough task. But how do we do this? Um, I think the first um, message we always try to to put forward is that gender does not equal women women. It's much more than that. Um, it's about understanding socially constructed roles and norms that you know affect, affect women, but also affect men, affect people of different genders, non-binary, queer. And it's important for everyone's lives to understand how these stereotypes and these norms are limiting our potential and are limiting our access to resources and opportunities. And so this is very much a message that we try to promote um, that you know, men also have gender. And if you see the conversations uh, we, we see, a lot of the times it's as if no, gender refers only to women when it's not true. So I think it's very much about showing the relevance of gender perspectives for everyone in society, uh, making sure this is not perceived as a women's issue only. Um, for sure, women's empowerment is a part of the conversation, but it's not the conversation as a whole. So I think diversifying the topics, diversifying the who, who is involved in this, um, I think that, that would be beneficial uh, to have you know, more people, more perspectives, uh, being encompassed in, in gender uh, conversations. Um, so this is, this is one, one way of, of uh, I, I would propose that we try to engage with people that are not yet convinced um, about the relevance of, of gender perspectives in arms control and disarmament. Another way is to build expertise, uh, to make sure that gender perspectives and, and gender knowledge and gender analysis are valued as, as an expertise. Uh, I don't think, you know, being a woman is enough to qualify anyone as a gender expert. So I would uh, propose also encourage um, that gender analysis be integrated into curriculums, you know, into diplomatic trainings. Um, and here at UNID, we are trying to do our part, which is also, you know, to produce research about um, gender norms and their relevance to arms control and disarmament. 
Most definitely. Those are brilliant uh, recommendations. And I think it's also just so telling, you know, when, when you were saying how people don't associate men with gender um, and they, it just kind of sends this message, at least to me, that, oh, men is just the default and, you know, women are the, the sort of, you know, lesser beings here in this situation. And I think that's also so much part of the problem of how it's perceived and, and also how, you know, whenever you start trying to empower women then it's all of a sudden oh why are women just getting all the attention now and what about men and it's like well <laughs> you know we're, we're looking at the whole structure here you know we've obviously as you know experts in the field put it into a context and and you know women's empowerment is part of a solution within the space because the representation is lacking um, and also another point of you know your whole uh, concept of you can't just add women in and stir around you also have to have that this, you know, the gender perspective um, brought into it. Yeah, and, 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 and men, yeah, men and women can both have a gender perspective. Many people forget that, right? Exactly. Men can also be gender experts. Yes, that's going to be the headline of this whole <laughs> podcast. Men can also be gender experts. <laughs> no, but definitely. And I think that those are really good um good recommendations to to carry with us and and to keep in mind so thank you very much for that and I want to some more recommendations from you because you're so good at giving them out um, but in terms of youth empowerment so our last question for today what is your advice to young people who want to enter into the nuclear disarmament field because it is quite tough out there for us young people yes I think it is it is a space that it's difficult to to enter I think you're you're right, Michaela. Um, let's see, what can I <laughs> recommend? I think what you are doing and your colleagues are doing is already uh, very incredible that you set up um, your own podcast and you know create a space to channel your voice and to broadcast your voice. I really, uh, I think that's amazing. And I think that's what you should be doing also, you know, uh, finding, cre creating our opportunities um, to produce content and to also, you know, um, develop your skills, your skill as a communicator, your skill as, um, as an expert. Um, so I think you're already doing uh, great work in this area. What I um, always tell, I mean, sometimes, you know, people ask me this and and what I would say, um, from the perspective of someone who works with research, I think it's important that you write and publish. And I don't think it needs to be, you know, peer review articles. Um, I think nowadays you can find different blogs. Um, even platforms like LinkedIn, for instance, offer the option of writing a text, publishing a text. And I think that is good for different reasons. I think first, it's good to you know, exercise your analytical skills. So for instance, if you went to a panel and you thought something was interesting, you can write about that. Um, if you see, you know, I think anniversaries of conventions, for instance, are a good hook to write something. And it doesn't have to be you know, always groundbreaking and incredible, but it shows that you can put your thoughts on paper um, and yeah, sometimes it leads to interesting collaborations. I think there are different uh, websites that publish this kind of short pieces. 
and uh, that can be you know a way of uh, collaborating with someone maybe someone who is an academic or maybe someone who is a, a, a policy specialist uh, and then you can reach out to them and say uh, hey you know I'm, I'm interested in writing something would you like to be a co-author um, so I think these kind of things, they are good to, as I said, practice writing skills and analytical skills, but also, um, you know, building a little bit of your profile. And then when you apply for, again, I'm thinking from where I come from, which is like research. When you apply for a position, you can list that as publications. And then whoever is recruiting can go and have a look and see what you've written before. Um, so I would encourage people to, you know, just go out there and write and find ways to publish. As I said, even if you're self-publishing it in your profile on LinkedIn or a Medium blog or things like that, I find that important. And I'm still very much, you know, old-fashioned thinking about the written word, but I also think podcasts um, are a very good idea. And uh, I think I see different podcasts, you know, sprouting. And uh, I don't think the field is crowded yet. I think there is space for more and more. So I also think, you know, uh, if you can just experiment with different kinds of formats and media, go for it. Because um, I think that also helps you build your profile in the field. Most definitely. And I think that that's uh, what all of us at Youth Fusion are trying to do is, you know, really try because it's obviously a volunteering position. And I think that, you know, I would really like to also just chip in with um, with my two senses that even if it's, you know, unpaid and if you have some time to just volunteer, even um, to not commit to necessarily like a full time uh, position, but just something where you can contribute um something and and sort of get your your name out there get a network get a community uh, i think community is super super important here as well to have like-minded people um, by your side to help you i think that that's really what counts um and also just to mention for our listeners anyone is also welcome to write for the youth fusion blog uh and be featured there as a platform so if there are any youths out there who are listening then uh you're welcome to use our platform to to get your message across and we'll help you in that process um, but I think it's also important just to to help uh, one another as much as we can as well, and then really build each other up and and just form a community um, around our work because that's the people are also people have a lot of power I think as well. So definitely for youths, I think between Renata and I, we hope you have some inspiration <laughs> now. Yes. Um, but Renata, do you have any finishing words that you'd like to just get out there? Any main points you'd like to, to conclude with? I would like to thank you again and say that the work that you are doing with Youth Fusion is really interesting. And I'd like to congratulate you for that. And yes, we have, a, if I may also do some advertisement, uh, UniD runs a gender and disarmament online hub. Uh, so I encourage everybody who is interested in this topic to visit the hub. It's at unidear.org slash gender. Um, yeah, and you can learn more about our work there. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you very much. And we'll uh, also publish that in the, the art when we'll write an article about this um, so everyone can see, because I've also been a frequent flyer at the, the Unity Hub <laughs> and used it a lot for my, when I was in Unity doing a lot of the work. Um, so I've made good use of that as well. It's really a brilliant resource. So I would highly recommend it. But thank you so much, Renata, for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you're very, very busy. So we're very grateful that you've taken the time. And we also hope to keep in touch. Yes, for sure. Thank you very much, Michaela, and keep up the good work. Thank you. A big thanks to Renata Hesmandalakwa, and thank you all for listening. You can find out more about Youth Fusion on our website, www youth-fusion.org or at Youth Fusion on most social media platforms. For a closer look at some of the projects mentioned in this episode, you can find this interview in an article format on the Youth Fusion website on our Youth Fusion blog. This was the third episode in the series. You can find more inspiring interviews on Spotify or on the links provided on the Youth Fusion website under our podcast tab. Youth Fusion is a worldwide networking platform for young individuals and organizations in the field of nuclear disarmament, risk reduction and non-proliferation. We focus on youth action and intergenerational dialogue, building on the links between disarmament, peace, climate action, sustainable development and building back better from the pandemic. Our goals are clear, to inform, educate, connect and engage with our fellow students, activists and enthusiasts. Through these activities and as part of the Abolition 2000 Network, we are contributing to the total abolition of nuclear weapons. Thanks for tuning in, stay safe and goodbye for now.